Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined first on today's programme by Jeremy Piercy. Jeremy is the Managing Director of Shared Earth. Jeremy, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Thank you. It's great to be with you. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Jeremy. Now, before we dive straight into leadership, uh, Jeremy, I'm interested to understand a little bit more about the uh, the shared earth business. Perhaps you could share some of the, that information about the business with the listeners tuning in. Uh, okay, just briefly, shared earth started in 1986 um, with a small shop in York. Uh, we now have uh, two shops. Uh, And we also wholesale. We're one of the largest uh, fair trade wholesalers in the UK. Um, We import from Africa, Asia, South America on a fair trade basis, which means trying to provide long-term employment, decent wages and so on. And we're also very keen on um, environmental products, uh, sustainable products, recycled products, and anything that will help to uh, uh, benefit the environment in some way. So for those tuning in, that's pretty much a summary of what uh, Shared Earth essentially does, as it were. And Jeremy, thinking about the issue of uh, leadership, first and foremost, just before we get into um, the conversation, just that little bit further, um, I'm interested to understand what the word leader actually means to you. So what should a leader be in your eyes? Well, the first thing that comes to mind about uh, what does uh, leadership mean to me is uh, nasty teachers at school. Um, But... um, I think we can go on from there and say that um, good teachers were also um, an influence on me. Um, and I can look back as well to um, uh, my grandmother, who was a suffragette in, in those days, and uh, my mother and uh, aunt, who founded a primary school when I was very young. started with um, six pupils. One, uh, I was one of them, and my two cousins were, were two of the others, and then ended up with 70 pupils. So... I've got that um, example of women leaders in my family. Um, so leadership, uh, what does it mean? It means setting an example, going on and doing things, passion and enthusiasm about uh, what you're doing. I think that would probably mm. uh, sum it up. And thinking of your own sort of personal leadership style with regards to the shared earth business, how would you describe that? Um, I like to give people uh, responsibility as much as possible. Um, so probably um, the best examples of uh, leaders in, in uh, Shared Earth would probably be my fellow directors. Um, all of them work very hard, um, and they're all 100% trustworthy. Um, so I can rely on them to, um, to, to, to get things done uh, without too much influence from me. Um, We've got uh, Paul, who's been with us 25 years, who's totally committed. He's like a favorite uncle. All staff go to him for help, but he's also an excellent judge of character. Then we've got Jen, who's our retail manager and manages our shop in Liverpool. I suppose you could say uh, from her, one um, way of um, uh, assessing her is that um, she's in a shop with um, about uh, eight or nine staff on basically minimum wages or close to them in the retail sector, 
Um, the average um, time they've been with us is over six years. So that's a, a great job she's done there. Um, and then I've got uh, David, who's been with us seven years, and he's absolutely fantastic with customers, and he inspires confidence. He, uh, if you don't get a reply to him to an email you send him within five minutes, then uh, it'll probably be within an hour, and it's very rarely going to be next mm. time. Um, so those are just examples of um, uh, leaders, in, in my view, who are who, you know, wonderful people who've helped to, to get to make Shared Earth successful. And would you say that you look to these people for inspiration? And indeed, Jeremy, are there any other figures out there that you are inspired by? Uh, yes, um, I, I certainly we we tend to work in a way in which we, where we discuss things rather than me making um, uh, decisions and then telling everyone else. I try to um, uh, to to discuss things openly with people. I suppose one of the influences when I started Shared Earth was a consultant. And um, his um, his way of doing things was basically, I think, largely to listen. So um, you can learn so much from hearing other people's views. So I try to do that. Um, and um, and then I suppose another thing would be um, sense of humour, having a sense of humour, and being able to laugh about things, including yourself. That's very important. Um, and then another thing as well, another people I've learned from are people who feel like me, passionate about what they're doing. Um, if you, if your aim in running a business is just to, to make as much money as you can for yourself, then that doesn't really inspire your staff. Um, but if you want to help a community around you to uh, protect the environment, to create a better world, if you have aims like this, then this really helps to inspire your staff and make them work really hard and feel a part of the business. Mm, can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, uh, Jeremy. And I think when we think of leadership, it's fair to say, isn't it, that it's really being put to the test, perhaps more so than ever in our time with the emergence of the COVID-19 situation and the need for leaders of businesses, leaders of governments, institutions, communities to attempt to chart a course through this unprecedented time. Uh, tell me, for yourselves at Shared Earth, Jeremy, just how has it been attempting to navigate the challenges of this pandemic? It's been difficult insofar as, well, first of all, our two shops have uh, been closed, of course, for three months. Mm. Um, and uh, in Holtel, uh, most of our customers have been closed. Uh, but we've, um, we've been very grateful for the government help that we've received. Um, and we've also received our main customers, Oxfam, and uh, they've been uh, generous in giving us advance uh, payments and, and promising to respect the orders and still take them on. Uh, so um, I think this year we're, we're fine, but our worry would be more next year when there may be a recession. And, um, for instance, Oxfam, because they've lost uh, three, three months of the year, they may have a lot of stock left over from, from next year, which may mean their orders next year are down a lot. So if anything, we're, we're concerned about uh, next year rather than this year. And I suppose that safeguarding mental health and well-being among employees um, at Shared Earth as well has been of great concern during this time. Um, well, it's been uh, quite difficult. Most of our staff have been on furlough, of course. Um, I've left it to our shop managers to uh, keep mm. in touch with the shop staff. And then for, for our office staff, we have about eight office staff. Um, then um, we've had weekly uh, meetings on Zoom or Teams. And uh, that's certainly helped to uh, to keep people 
uh, together, I think. Uh, now they're all back um, pretty much, and um, we're uh, quite happy about the way things are going. That's certainly um, encouraging uh, to hear, Jeremy, that there's some encouragement uh, for the future. Um, looking back over your experience of handling the uh, the pandemic thus far, do you think that there is anything that you have learned from this experience? Um, well, of course, it's been a great uh, shock um, walking down um, Stonegate, the main street in York, mm. um, on the first week or two of the pandemic. Um, it was like uh, the day of the trippage, if you if you know that uh, story, when uh, everyone is blind and there's no one no one about anymore. It's uh, very strange. Um, so, um, yeah, what have we learned? Um, I suppose the that one thing you might reflect on it is that change happens and um, things uh, won't be entirely the same after COVID-19. But that's part of the challenge of business. And if you don't change as a business, then then you're not going to survive. Mm. So um, as an extreme, for instance, I thought at one time, okay, retail, there's not much future in retail. Uh, Let's move into uh, home insulation and uh, start um, setting up a home insulation service, which is completely different from anything we've done. It's mm. maybe a bit over the top, but um, uh, you just have to you know, keep thinking about the way things are going. Well, business certainly has had to adapt and innovate during this time. And there's been a whole load of review as well about our working practices and some aspects of the lockdown period in that sort of sense um, could well end up being permanent parts of the way we do business in this country with regard to working uh, from home more. And um, that would obviously be more on a personal basis, I would say. Um, is that something that you can see happening um, across um, the uh, the nation, Jeremy, as we sort of adjust to this new normal? Yes, certainly. Uh um, at least two of our staff are wanting to work from from home now. Uh, one uh, wants to move down to uh, Glastonbury, miles and miles away, and we thought, well, okay, yeah, she's um, she's just been working at home, and we can we can cope with that. So we'll have a worker uh, a couple of hundred miles away, and um, hopefully that will work uh, okay. Um, so yes, um, there, there will be changes. Um, I think another thing that I would say is is likely to be a change is in people's attitude um, towards the priorities we have. I think that um, tackling the climate change uh, crisis mm. is absolutely key. Um, but if COVID-19 is a crisis, then the next one could well be um, the climate crisis. Um, and that uh, this is absolutely key for businesses to, to get hold of um, when they're creating uh, jobs, creating new products and so on. Um, because the, pro- the um, we've increased our sales by 30% a year for about six years now. Mm. And uh, last year it was 42%. Um, and it's a key part of our strategy. And we can see other similar businesses around us which where the um, sales are pretty stagnant. Um, and the main thing that I can account for for our success has been this emphasis on uh, on the sustainable products and uh, our in- our concern about the environment, uh, and I can see that in other businesses too. So I mm. think this is this will have been emphasised by the COVID nineteen crisis, um, and it's going to be a really massive thing in the future. 
And the environment is, of course, very much at the forefront of this review of our working practice because that removal of the need to commute by using, of course, cars, buses and other vehicles um, as well, that, that's going to take um, a huge amount of uh, strain off uh, the environment, of course, and let's certainly hope we'll see um, the benefits of that moving forward if it is something that we do um, choose to uh, pursue. Um, Jeremy, reflecting on your experience of not only managing shared earth up to this point, but also dealing with a recession and a crisis like this as well, just if you had to give some advice to somebody who was maybe starting out in business for the first time, what piece of advice would you give them? Well, I think I would repeat what I've just said, that um, um, first of all, that they they need to have an enthusiasm, a passion uh, about what they're doing so they can inspire others uh, to make their business successful. And secondly, that they should uh, keep uh, environmental issues uh, very much in mind uh, when they're uh, creating products or deciding uh, the way in which their, their business should go. Uh, because that's going to be uh, key in the future. And thinking about what the next 12 to 18 months hold specifically for yourself and for Shared Earth as we adjust as a country to the new normal, what do you think is next for you and what do you hope to achieve? Well, obviously, we're still uh, trying to get over this COVID-19 crisis, but I think, um, as I say, we're, we're, we're okay for the next uh, for the rest of this year. Uh, but if anything, uh, I think we'd like to uh, to expand. Uh, we're worried about our suppliers, some of our suppliers in, in developing countries. Uh, I'm hearing about uh, potential uh, famines in certain countries like Bangladesh because of the uh, lockdowns there and a lot of people starving. And um, so one call on us is to try to order as much as we possibly can. And uh, we're just trying to do our best, but we're, we're limited by the amount, obviously, that we can sell. Uh, but uh, if anything, I feel uh, optimistic about uh, the future for us because I feel that we have the uh, the type of product and the type of service that uh, that consumers want uh, nowadays. Um, our shop in Liverpool, the sales are already higher than they were last year after four weeks of opening, I think it is now. Uh, and wholesale sales are getting back to what they were last year. So, um, and, and that's with still lots and lots of shops uh, not open or opening only half open. Uh, so I'm, I'm personally very optimistic about the way things are going to go for us. Mm, it's good that there's uh, some optimism there, Jeremy, and let's hope there's some positive um, news to share in the uh, the coming months. And I actually think it would be fantastic, just given how informative it's been having you join us today, to have you back on the programme with us in a few months' time, just to see how things are getting on and understand what initiatives you're getting involved in at that point in time as well. That would be great. I think it would be fantastic as well, Jeremy. It's been a real pleasure having you join us on uh, the uh, the programme today. And most importantly, until we do speak again in future, please do take care and do stay safe with all still going on in the world because we're still not quite sure the way that the pandemic is going to go. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be positive trajectory from here on in. Definitely. That was Jeremy Piercy speaking, Managing Director of Shared Earth. And for those tuning into the programme with lockdown restrictions continuing to lift, do continue to be sensible, look after yourselves and think of others because it really does make a tangible difference in keeping people safe and most importantly, saving lives. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary 
Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. In fact, during his political career, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most well-known politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And he had a fantastic career accomplishing all of that despite being blind from birth. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as my colleague Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save 
the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more 
seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.